I want to ask you to do something this morning, though it may not be something that you are all comfortable with. I want you to think of the last time you were brought to sadness. Is that my car? <laughs> if you have a little beeper on your car, beep it. Um, in a way, I want you to think of the last time you were brought to sadness in a way that you weren't sure you could bear. Like the moment, the last time you were brought to a point of sadness or despair, and you're like, why is this happening to me? What's going on? Like, what's the deal? Now, it could have been the result of something you did. It could have been the result of something someone else did to you. Or it could just be the result of an unexpected tragedy. It really doesn't matter. I simply want you to recall in your mind for a minute that moment. Then I want to pose a premise for you this week. If suffering isn't a part of a greater plan, then it is truly meaningless. See, if, you, if, there, if you're suffering, even the thing we hate to talk about, even the thing we hate to even think about, isn't somehow connected to a greater plan then we have to say that it was absolutely a meaningless, pointless period in our lives. Even if it was short, or no matter how short or long it was. But here's the catch. If it, there is a greater plan behind it, then no suffering is truly meaningless. Even if we don't understand the meaning of it in the moment. Even if we never truly understand the meaning of it. So for the past four weeks, we've been looking at the story of Joseph. Joseph, as you recall, was the favored son of Jacob, his father. But his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery. Now, Joseph had a dream of basically his whole family bowing down to him. And his brothers heard this. They hated him for it. They said, this will get rid of it. We'll have none of that. And so they sent him away into the land of Egypt. Now, in Egypt, Joseph was a servant who then rose to prominence... Uh, And then by no fault of his own, he was placed in prison, where once again, he rose to prominence. And when we last left off, he had warned the Pharaoh of Egypt, he had just gotten out of prison, warned the Pharaoh of Egypt that seven uh, years of famine were coming, but they were seven years away. And so the Pharaoh of Egypt basically placed him in a position of power. He became the number two guy in Egypt to ensure the people's survival. So, that's where we pick up today in Genesis chapter 42. By the way, we're covering a lot of ground today, so I'll explain most of the story and then highlight some verses as we go. I know sometimes I read the whole passage, but since we're covering a a number of chapters, this helps. So, we pick up this morning at the beginning of that famine. Basically, we're back, and, and for a moment, the... The author transports us back into the land of Canaan, back to the land of Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob. And they're in this, they had no idea this was coming, so they're running out of food, and we read in verse 1 of chapter 4, 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, and that we may live and not die. 
So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, this tells you a couple things. One, it tells you how good Joseph was at his job. Joseph was put in charge of uh, creating a stockpile for seven years of famine. He had so much that not only did he have enough supply for the land of Egypt, he had enough for the surrounding land around them too. So, God was faithful. He was still blessing Joseph. Basically, there was not only enough for Egypt, there was enough for the nations around them, including Canaan. So, what we find here is that Joseph, uh, or Jacob, now a very old man Jacob is, sends his sons to go get provision. He says, we're starving here, but there's food in Egypt. Go buy food in Egypt. So, he holds, but when he sends them, he holds on to one son, Benjamin. Benjamin is the only son of Rachel, the only other son of Rachel, and it is Joseph's, uh, his only full-blooded brother, okay? So after, so from Jacob's standpoint, think about this for a second. Rachel was his, his favorite, his favorite wife. She was the one he loved, and he only had two sons from her. Joseph, who he thought was dead, and Benjamin. So he hedges his bet now. He says, he says, sons, you go and get food for us, but I'm going to keep Benjamin with me so that in case anything goes wrong and he, everyone's killed, I still have him. To which I'm sure they said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> thanks for looking out for us. So, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Okay, so in order to understand this, Many years have passed by. Joseph has gone from a teenager to a grown man and lived a pretty hard life in like his 20s. He was a slave and a prisoner. So he's probably more hardened looking now. He's tougher. He's rougher. He's, maybe he has a beard and he couldn't grow a beard before. Um, also, we learned last, as we learned last week, he's dressed in Egyptian official clothing. So he's wearing clothing they would never expect their brother to wear. He has a new name. The Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian name that he's going by. And as we'll see later, he's even speaking the Egyptian language through a translator. So all signs point to, no way this is Joe, okay? Maybe there was a thought in their head. They're like, you know, well, looks familiar in the eyes, but eh, whatever. But anyway, so here he is in this position. And as they come to him, they bow down before him. This is significant. This is the fulfillment of Joseph's dream. Joseph dreamt, if you remember, that his brothers like, were, were uh, stocks that basically bowed down before him. And that's the entire thing that led him into the land of Egypt. So here, in the weirdest of situations, he actually finds the fulfillment of his dreams. His brothers are bowing down before him. At this point, Joseph is effectively an Egyptian for all intents and purposes. Uh, for these reasons, the brothers do not suspect that he is the one whom they have sold to slavery. Not only that, but we see that the tables have turned. 
And now it's Joseph who holds their lives in the palm of his hand. Now it's time for payback, right? He has just spent years and years and years of hard work, labor, slavery, imprisonment, all these things just so that they could, you know, just because of what they did. And now they're coming to him asking for food. He has them in the palm of his hand. So much like they did many years ago, Joseph has a plan. First, he accuses the brothers of being spies come to search out the land. He asks them about their family. In the process of this questioning them, he asks them about their family. What happened to your father? How many brothers do you have? And they tell him, we are ten brothers. One is at home with, we are ten brothers. One is at home with our father and the other is no longer. Not really is realizing that this is their long lost brother that they are speaking to at this very moment. So, they deny the charges that they're spies, but Joseph says, you know what? I don't believe you. Lock them up. So they hold on to him. They keep him in custody for three days. Then in verse 42, starting in verse 18, we read, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Referring to Joseph. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, that is Joseph, turned away from them and wept. Okay. They're in this situation, and when they're trying to figure out, Why are we in this situation? Why do they think we're spies? All of a sudden it comes to them. This is, this is God punishing us because we sold our brother into slavery. He pleaded with us and we didn't listen to him. That is why this is happening. His blood has come back on our heads. What they don't realize is the gentleman in the corner speaks perfect Hebrew and can hear every word they're saying and it is in fact their brother. And so for a little moment, as he's in the middle of his big payback scheme, Joseph backs away from them and cries. There's something too painful uh, to happen. This is one of a number of times in which we read that Joseph weeps in this story. So Joseph offers them a deal. Bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, back here, and I'll believe you that you're not spies. I'm going to hold one of your brothers until then. And so... It's really not quite clear yet why Joseph wants Benjamin. Um, it could be, some commentators have suggested that Joseph feared that they would actually do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to him. And so it could be that he wanted to protect Benjamin and, and thus have him brought to the land of Egypt. But it doesn't tell us specifically. Um, so the brothers talk it out in their native language and they go, okay, we got to do this. And so what Joseph does is he holds on to one of their brothers, Simeon. And he sends the rest home with food and everything to go tell their dad the news. We need, uh, we need you to send Benjamin back with us. 
And so, at that point also, Joseph does something else. See, they brought sacks of money with them to pay for the grain. And so he tells his men, just slide the money back in their bags. Just put the money back in where it came from. And so as they're on their way home, they look in their their money bags, and they see that the money is still there. Uh Uh-oh, right? What does it look like? It looks like we stole from them. It looks like we didn't pay for the services we had. So now, he's already got one of their brothers captive. They're coming back, and they're trying to tell dad to send his favorite son with them. And all along the way, they're like, oh, man, we forgot to pay for this. You ever, like, accidentally walk out of the store and forget to pay for something? Like, I, I don't mean steal. You, if you stole something, that's a totally different issue. <laughs> I mean, like, if you ever, like, had, if you just ever had something in, like, your pocket or you had it in your, your, uh, your, your uh, basket and you just forgot to run that thing through and you left and you got in the cart and you're like, ooh, well, this is a lot worse than that, Okay. <laughs> That's the situation we're in. Okay, so returning home, they tell their father Jacob about their encounter and about this strange Egyptian governor who's holding Simeon captive. They say, in order to do this, we've got to go back with Benjamin. And Jacob, being father of the year that he is, says, nah, we'll just, I can do without Simeon. We'll, I'm, I'm not letting Benjamin go. And so they literally just let him sit there until the food runs out. They just keep going, they eat, and they leave him there. Um, and basically what happens is Benjamin pleads with their father. He even say in this point in time, uh, or I'm sorry, Benjamin, Reuben pleads with their father. He basically says, look, send Benjamin with us. And if you need, you can take my son's life for, in, 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 uh, in replace of them if we don't come back with Benjamin. To which I'm sure Reuben's son said, thanks, dad. But Jacob is unwilling to risk his beloved son. Verse 38 of chapter 42, it says, But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. In other words, if I lose Benjamin, I will die of sadness. So, time passes. The famine continues. It lasts much longer than people thought. And so the grain runs out again. And only Egypt is prepared for something to last this long. So once again, Jacob again sends his son, tells his sons, now nine of them, to go buy grain in Egypt. But they tell him, basically, look, we can't go back without Benjamin, okay? Basically, we, cannot, we can't go back. This guy's going to kill us if we go back there without Benjamin. He's going to think we're spies. And so he goes, okay, I will send you with Benjamin... And I'll send you with a bunch of gifts. So he gives them a whole bunch of gifts. He says, go, buy more grain, take the money back that you forgot to pay him, get it all taken care of. So reluctantly, he sends them on their way. Verse 15 of chapter 43, it says, So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose, went down to Egypt, and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Okay, everything seems to go well, but kind of fishy, okay? All along, he has literally been holding one of their brothers captive. And now they show up and he goes, Hey, join me for dinner. Not exactly the kind... There's something up here and they know it. They can just 
There's an uneasiness about this. However, they can't refuse. So they arrive at Joseph's home, and as he enters once again, they bow to him. Then Joseph finally sees his little brother Benjamin, all grown up after all these years. Verse 43, verse 29, chapter 43, verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me about? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, controlling himself. He said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him uh, by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for it is an abomination to the Egyptians. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. And they drank and made merry with him. Okay. So, a couple things we see here. Joseph wasn't prepared to see his little brother. He wasn't prepared for the emotions that would come, come to the surface when he saw him. So once again, he excuses himself. It says he's overcome with compassion, and he leaves and cries. Now, it's not really clear what Joseph's revenge plan was at this point in time, but we start to see the cracks in it. Can he go through? Will he go through with it? Is what, the, uh, is what the author wants us to consider. Uh, there's also this interesting detail here about the Egyptians and the Hebrews not dining with each other. Uh, this shows this separation of things. And then the, se- the trap is set. Chapter 44. So though Joseph has now been twice overcome with compassion, he continues with his revenge plan. Once again, he loads the brother's sacks up, but now he has the men slip in his silver cup into Benjamin's sack without him knowing. The brothers wake up in the morning and make their way back to Canaan with all the brothers that they think is alive. And Joseph then springs the trap on them. Chapter 44, verse 4. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not from the my Lord... Is this not... That what that my Lord drinks, and by this he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. Okay, so here's the trap. He puts the, he puts the silver cup in his bag, and he goes, You stole it! And they come, and his men surround him. Uh, also, there's a weird thing here. It says he practices divination. Uh, the Bible forbids divination. It's like witchcraft. Um, the, the Israelites were forbidden from practicing it. And the story never actually tells us here that Joseph practiced that. It's more likely this is a ruse. This is a way to kind of make them buy into this idea a little more. It's a way to sell them on his story. And so, most likely this is, uh, this is all just a plan. The men overtake the brothers and then they find the cup and it's in Benjamin's bag. Broken. The brothers return. So they, what's going to happen? He's going to take Benjamin and the rest can go. The brothers realize they cannot return to their father like this. So they go with, to Joseph to plead with him, still not aware of his true identity. And it's at this point in time, Judah steps up. If you guys remember from like three weeks ago, Judah was not a good guy, right? 
Judah was not the standout brother. But God, brought, but God brought Judah to a place where he confessed his sin and he turned from it. And so Judah is the one that we read, the unlikely person who speaks out on his little brother's behalf. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, he says, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, that is to death. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, verse 33, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Okay. You know what Judah said about... Joseph, when he was young, and they sold him into slavery, and they had him sitting in a pit planning to kill him, Judah said, you know what? Rather than kill him, let's sell him. So that this man who's done all that is the one who steps up and says, no, take me instead of him, please. I cannot go back to my father with this. It will kill my dad. If there's anything to do, whatever the punishment is, let me bear it. Judah says to Joseph. Now, at this point, it's the final straw. In spite of all this, Joseph can take it no more. And he speaks. Verse 45, starting verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried. Make everyone go out of me. So he sends out his servants. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Verse 2. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. All the while they've been talking to this governor. He sends his servants out of the room. He's crying in front of him. And he says... I'm your brother, who you sold into slavery, who you didn't care enough, who you only sold into slavery because there was no profit in killing me. Put yourself in his brother's shoes for a second. What do you think they're thinking? Oh, didn't know that. At this point, they are sure they are done for, right? Right? They know that Joseph has all the power in his hands, and he has all the right to to strike down on them. It is in his power to punish them, and it would be just for him to do so. At this point, this is not good news for Joseph's brothers. They know they've wronged him. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years. And yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And to keep alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to, uh, father to Pharaoh and Lord all, of, of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. In the end, Joseph can take it no longer. His compassion has got the better of him. Why? 
Because he, he understands as horrible as his experiences were, as painful as they have been, ultimately, in the end, it was God who sent him to Egypt. And he did so with a purpose, to save lives. Twice the phrase, God sent me, is used in this statement. I love that he uses the word sent. See, all along, Joseph had probably thought this was just a senseless act of evil. But now he realizes, no, in truth, he was on a mission from God. Had God not sent Joseph to Egypt, massive amounts of people would have starved. Not only that, but the family of Jacob, his, God's chosen people, would have surely been wiped out of existence. So in spite of all the evil that God is, uh, of all the evil that has happened to him, all the pain, all the suffering, God has blessed Joseph in his journeys just as he did with Jacob his father and Abraham his grandfather as well. And so Joseph embraces his brothers, falling on Benjamin's neck and kissing him. He tells them to go, tell their father that he is alive, to move the entire family to the nearby land of Goshen so that Joseph can care for them as there are five more years of famine still ahead. And there's a beautiful little ending to our story. Finally, our story ends with a father's joy restored. Verse 25 of chapter 45. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob, and he told them, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he could not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. There's a subtle play on words here. You may not have caught. See, at the beginning of our story, when, when, Joseph, when Jacob finds out that his son was taken from him, there's a subtle change in his name. The author goes from referring to him by his God-given name, Israel, back to his former name, Jacob. It's as though his strength had been sucked away from him, like the life had been drained out of him. Now, receiving his son back as he thought, almost as though it were from the dead. It says, Israel said, it is enough. God has restored his strength, revived him as he said. He had not just returned to him his son, he had brought back his strength, his vitality. Like Abraham, when he went to, up to sacrifice Isaac, Jacob has received his son back from the dead. So what do we take away from this, guys? Well, here's the big idea for you. If you remember nothing else, remember this this week. God is able to redeem your past and restore your joy. We see this throughout the chapter. Not only in the reunion of these brothers, but also in Joseph coming to terms with his Hebrew heritage, his family. God even uses Judah, the very wayward brother, to turn Joseph's heart around. But perhaps most of all, we see it in a father receiving the news that his long-lost son is not only alive, but going to save them all from famine. This is what God is in the business of doing. Taking broken paths and redeeming them for His good plans. This is a beautiful story. The story of compassion overpowering anger, even if it is a righteous anger. See, Joseph was fully justified in putting his brothers to death. They deserved it. But in the end, Joseph couldn't help 
but realize that this was God's plan and that God's plans were always good. It says, the old hymn says, whatever my God ordains is right. Just because this wasn't the path he would have chosen for himself doesn't mean it wasn't the path laid out for him by God. The Lord had determined that Joseph would suffer in order to save many people. Sound like anyone else you've heard of in the Bible? Guys, don't miss this. God is able to take all the pain of your past and restore the joy. The traumas you experience do not control your future. The Lord does. And He has plans for even those things that we would never choose to go through. The good news is that Joseph is not a freak occurrence either. He is not an anomaly God will take, we read for all of us, that God will take every pain, every crisis, every trauma, and He will redeem it for His good purposes, and then He will restore our joy. The last chapter of Revelation, we read this prophecy. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then listen to this, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Guys, this is the good news. Sorrow is a passing fad. It will not last forever. There is an immense beauty in this scene that it is not merely the Lord wiping the tears from His children's face, but God wiping them away for good, never to return. All suffering has a shelf life. But what God has in store for us is a joy that will never pass away. All you have to do is receive the gift of that life, His salvation, and you receive His joy through faith. To that I say, all glory be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. That just as you were in the habit of redeeming Joseph's story and restoring his joy, so God, you were in the habit of redeeming our past for your glory as well. God, your plans are good and perfect. And we can rest in them. God, all of us come to the table with some trauma, some crisis, some sorrow, some sadness that we would, never, we would never want to think of again. But because you are the Lord, we have hope even for those in those moments. God, we trust in your plans. We look for a day when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, never to see them return. That we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.